Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you are a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $19 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Right Sleeve and Common Skew, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Danny Rosen, president of BrandFuel. Our guest today is Memo Khan, founder and president of PromoShop, one of the industry's most creative, disruptive, and admired distributors. Memo started PromoShop in 1998 and quickly differentiated his company by using a healthy dose of design and creativity. PromoShop has always been more of a creative agency than a your logo here kind of company. This strategy has paid off well for Memo as he has grown PromoShop into a 10-location, $34 million company with over 40 salespeople in two countries. Memo is widely known, admired, and respected in the promotional products industry, and it's an absolute pleasure that we can welcome him to our program today. Memo, welcome, sir. Thank you very much, and I'm already blushing from that introduction, so I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I, I don't think I told any lies, but it, it, it is, uh, it's a pleasure to, uh, to write these intros and to read them. So um, we're going to start off with, uh, uh, with, 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 a, with an easy question for you here, Memo. Do you want to walk our listeners through your history uh, in the industry and how you got started in Promo Shop, and then how it is that you really honed in on this idea of focusing on creativity as core to your business model, because that's very unique. There's not a lot of distributors that do that. So I know it's a two-part question, but love love to hear your. I'll try. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, I start with luck, and I start with luck because, uh, like most of us, we graduate school and we don't know what we want to do when we grow up. And uh, I had the opportunity against my best uh, best sensibilities to go interview with a gentleman that owned a factory that manufactured buttons and badges. And uh, I thought I was too good for that, but I decided to go listen anyways. And uh, I was mesmerized by the four-hour interview that I had with this gentleman uh, by the name of Wesley Rue in the company called Western Badge and Trophy. Mm. And uh, I worked there for two and a half years where I learned a lot about manufacturing. I learned a lot about substrates and what it took to make things and products, and, and I thought that was an amazing learning curve. Uh, secondary to that, I, I then went uh, to a, an amazing company no longer uh, in the industry by the name of Idea Man, and Idea Man was known for its sales professional systems and the people within the company, and I worked there a little bit over a year where I was exposed to how the industry really worked. I really, working out of a supplier, I wasn't sure what the supply chain looked like. I wasn't sure what a sales organizations looked like, and that was my first exposure uh, right out of college. So um, I worked there for a little while, and uh, I, I sort of describe it as I learned sales 101, which has really impacted my life. Um, after about a year there, I had a great opportunity to go work with a competitor. And the competitor came about because one of our common clients thought that uh, he and I, uh, the gentleman's name is Mark Blumhart, and uh, he owned uh, Incentive Innovations. And uh, she thought that uh, it'd be wonderful for us to meet. We became golf buddies fairly quickly, at which time he uh, offered me an opportunity to come run the company with him. And um, that's where I got exposed to the creativity that uh, I wasn't sure existed in, the, uh, in this industry. I, uh, I worked with Mark for about two and a half years, and uh, we grew a, a semi-small company into a, a medium-sized company. And 
what ended up happening really was I, you know, it's like like in life, everything was tumbling on top of me. I, uh, I had just gotten married. I had just had my first child, and somehow I thought it'd be a great opportunity to start a new business. So um, I don't know what horrible thoughts came to mind that that made me decide this. So when everything was up in turmoil, I needed more change, I guess. And um, the vision behind it and why I thought of it was, imagine if you could combine the three things that I learned in my three previous organizations, and how can you bottle it into one place? Mm. And so I was thinking about manufacturing, sales 101, creative agency, mm. and how can you apply it to the promotional product industry? And that was sort of the vision behind it. Um, didn't know how to execute it, didn't know how it was going to be built, but I thought that if you start with a vision, if you start with a dream, then little by little you can figure out how to navigate to get to the pinnacle, which uh, today I can say is a, has been an amazing 15 plus years. So when you first started in 1998, walk us through what the company looked like. Was it you in your basement uh, <laughs> uh, calling upon Disney to, 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 to land a deal, or did you start it with a couple of partners and employees right off the bat? Uh, it's actually a scary story because uh, I think a lot of us sometimes think that we are uh, above and beyond and we are so critical to an organization. And this is what I thought of myself when I was uh, at Incentive Innovations. Uh, and I thought I had such a great relationship with the owner uh, that I sort of went to him and said, hey, listen, I'm going to start my own company. And um, I know that it's going to be a, a, a little hard for you. So uh, I'll give you as long as you need uh, for me to stay here. Uh, you know, I'll give you a couple months until you figure out who's going to take my position and such. Mm. And um, it was sort of a, a horrible afterthought that um, he called me afterwards and said, do me a favor, why don't you come tonight and pick up your stuff and leave. Mm. So I really was not ready for this. Mm. I had the vision. I had the, I, I, I knew what I wanted, but I really wasn't sure when I was going to do it, but I got thrown into it really quickly. Um, the What really happened was as soon as I got that call, uh, I called my dad, and I said, Dad, uh, my dad had a building uh, that he worked out of. And I said, is there any way that I can go work out of your office? I need a desk and a phone. Mm. Um, and that was day two. Oh, I forgot a bank account. Uh, I also <laughs> need to open a bank account. So uh, I had the vision. I didn't have the plan, and I was rushed into this whole, uh, this whole chaotic uh, opportunity, I guess. Uh, so it was a party of me. Uh, I started out of my dad's office. Uh, with a desk and a phone and uh, and, a, and a checkbook that didn't have my name on it. Uh, I really didn't even know what the name of the company was going to be, but I ran downtown and I figured out a way to get incorporated. And uh, so it was learning on the run, which I thought was pretty amazing. If I look back at it 15 years later, uh, I was crazy, and it was crazy times, but it was amazing times. Mm. Uh, the reason why I thought I was able to do that, I also I had a really nice book of business that I knew that I could support myself with for now. Right, uh, and then figure out what happens. Right. Um, so day three, literally, I um, I hired my first uh, employee, um, and uh, part of my vision was, which I don't still don't know if it's right or wrong, was I did not want to hire people that had industry experience. Hmm. Um, I thought that I could train them better. I thought that I could, you know, take him out of uh, the, you know, the the trunk slammer mentality and. And that since I wanted to do something different, which I thought would be a little bit unique in the industry, I didn't want them to already have preconceived notions of what it was 
And so I hired a lady that had no experience, but I was really uh, willing to learn and willing to risk some time. And uh, literally for the first six months, it was me and an assistant uh, trying to figure out how to run. Back then, I had uh, $3 million plus dollars in business myself, uh, which allowed me to, uh, to sort of start it off. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that touches on, there's so many things that you've just said there that I, I know we'd love to, to drill into here, but the, uh, I think one of the things that comes immediately to mind is this idea of the, the how one trains and grows people within this industry. And, and the reason I ask you that question is that I think the standard wisdom in the business is I'm going to hire someone with experience and I'm going to get them because I might be able to provide a better commission split and I want to hire someone with experience because they can hit the ground running versus bringing in someone from the outside, investing in them, possibly paying them a pretty decent base and then growing them through the organization. So my question is, as you've grown the organization memo over the last 15, 16 years, what has been your secret to hiring good people and growing and training them and making them amazing salespeople? Well, it really started by taking people that had no experience in the industry. Yeah. Uh, and we did that for the first four or five years of the company. Uh, and the plan that I had was uh, if you want a job, uh, regardless of uh, you want support, sales, uh, creative, whatever it is, you need to start as an assistant. And you have to be an assistant of mine. Yep. And you're going to be next to me. You're going to hear my conversations. Again, not to say that I was right or wrong, but it was just the way that I thought would be best suited. And uh, and the people that were willing to give me six, and I would say, you know, I, I need a commitment of six months. After six months, you'll realize that this is what you want to do for a living. And then I would ask for another six-month commitment for you to realize that this is something you're going to be successful at. Yep. So I truly was saying, I need a year of your life. I'm going to pay you enough to survive, but you're not going to have enough money to, to go party it up or take a lot of vacations. But so, you know, it, it's, a, it's a true commitment. And I really think that after that year, whoever made it through the year, I mean, by then they were so committed and so they drank enough of the juice that, that you truly had uh, somebody that you can go to war with and somebody that was uh, not just an employee but a fan in a committed um, – you know, company person because they had started from you know, as they say, some of the most amazing stories are people that start in the in the mail rooms of some of these big organizations, and so that's how we started. Uh, but it's also expensive and really time consuming at the end of the day, and uh, and that got me through uh, the first four or five years of the of the business, and uh, and it was awesome. Uh, it was awesome, but it had pains. You know, I, uh, every single weekend uh, I worked Saturday, Sundays. You know, we didn't have a, we did not have a uh, an accounting department. So I would come pay checks on Saturdays and send out invoices on Sundays. Yep. Uh, you know, until we could afford a little bit more of an infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and presumably, you've uh, have you found that over the years that that uh, investment in training and that year long investment has uh, helped you from a retention and culture perspective. I know it's a loaded question. I think I know what the answer is, but <laughs> yeah, and and you're right on. Uh, absolutely, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, and it starts with the culture. You know, I'm a uh, big believer in culture. Big believer that you cannot just buy a culture and you cannot just invent a culture. You got to live and die by a culture. 
And that's really where we have to spend a ton of time and money and, and forethought with how can you create an environment. Uh, and it starts with a cohesive unit. You know, I, I call everyone here, it's, it's about us. It's always we, it's not I. Uh, but you can't just continue to press that upon people. You actually got to see it and they got to feel it. And uh, I'm really proud to say that over the, the years, I, I believe that we have created a culture that will challenge almost any organization, not only in our industry, but in most industries. And it comes because we've empowered them. It comes because their voice is uh, important, is because we have open communication uh, skills and uh, ways. Uh, I, you know, I, I always talk about no door except for accounting uh, in accounting office uh, is ever locked. Right. Uh, the sharing of data and the sharing of information, which I think is really hard in this industry. You know, we're all salespeople and we're all competitive and we're all a little bit on the type A uh, scenario. And so we always sort of are, are jostling against our neighbors and against our friends. And uh, in one of the companies that I had worked at, um, you know, it was back in the Rolodex days, and it was amazing how we were all scared that somebody, you know, across the corner would steal our Rolodex and go after our business. Right. And that was something that just stood out to me, that that's everything I never wanted to be part of again. Uh, it was not a bad situation. It was just not a good comfort zone. And so how can you create a, an organization or a culture where when your neighbor wins, you win as well? And that's been part of the the MO, uh, MO that we have here. And uh, fortunately, we've been able to keep it. And fortunately, we've not gone too full of ourselves where we have lost sight that that's really, really important. So how has, uh, so you, you made mention of the fact that for several years, you, you really focused on this, this model of assistance coming in and learning at your, um, at your feet, so to speak. And mm -hmm. Then yeah. in the, <laughs> uh, Thank you. Uh, uh, and, and, then, and then, of course, uh, in the last uh, five or ten years, your organization has scaled from the standpoint of bringing on uh, uh, people in different geographic locations and having pro promo shops in, uh, I think, nine or ten other uh, locations. Uh, yep. how, uh, how has that move gone? Because I know that as successful as it's been for you, I know that there are so many other entrepreneurs that have tried to do that and miserably fail. And yeah. 10 other locations is pretty impressive. Do you want to walk us through how, that, how, uh, uh, how you've been able to do that, how you're able to maintain the culture um, uh, with all these offices that are outside of L.A.? Uh, I can try. Uh, it starts with timing being everything in life. And uh, I got fortunate when one of the biggest organizations in the industry, Halo, went bankrupt. Right. And right. there were so, so much talent out there. And uh, we were a $5 million company back then, and it was sort of chaotic times. And the building that I'm in is the building that I started the company in, which is crazy. It's a 16-plus thousand square foot building. Hmm. And the vision was always, I thought that if you build it, they will come, you know, back to the, back to the, the movie stuff. And... Um, it was sort of a weird that, uh, you know, Halo goes through horrible times, and I happened to have worked with a lot of these people in, in my old uh, companies, and uh, they started shopping themselves. And uh, my approach with them was, listen, I have a great vision, I have a great plan, I have decent financial footing, and I have the space. Now I just need the people to come, you know, play with it or play within it. 
and uh, really fortunate that uh, we sort of doubled the size of the company from one night to another. And uh, it was amazingly successful and scary. And um, part of the push and part of the vision, I think part of the reason why people uh, were attracted to, here, to being here is because I explained to them that every single dollar that they sold really makes an impact in the entire organization. And I explained to them how I was hopeful that I could start supporting them. Uh, and I was explaining to them about the culture, and I was exp explaining to them about what was important to me, which was, you know, uh, working really hard and playing really hard in a lifestyle and a balance in life. And so, little by little, we created a a, a culture that that I think made sense to them. Um, and you know, I think it's really hard to be a culture person and a business person and a salesperson because there's so many mixed messages in between all those things that you're trying to promote. Um, and then uh, part of the group that came over uh, is a dear friend of mine. We were dear friends. We worked at Idea Man together. Uh, was a gentleman, Chris Robinson, that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of. Yep. And um, Chris has this innate passion to anything he touches. He wants to elevate the, the service level, so elevate the approach or the messaging. And when he and I were talking about him joining the company, and he happened to be working and living out of Boise, Idaho, so that became our first satellite office. Uh, but part of what he was all about was, hey, I want to make it cooler. I want to make it different. I want to make it special. Um, and I was so overwhelmed with trying to figure out how to process an order at the time right. that I that I honestly said, hey, Chris, if, if this is your gig and you want to do it, dude, here's here's the deal. Here's your checkbook. Not limited, not unlimited, but limited. Uh, help me create a culture. Help me create your vision. And so I give him a ton of kudos for pushing me and pushing the envelope to creating a type of vision and a type of uh, sort of internal and external perception and reality of how we run the company and what's important to the company. Um, and, and that's sort of where it started. And I think to answer your question about how you can continue to do that throughout eight or nine or ten offices, uh, I think it's just, uh, you know, it, it's incredible what the departments and the people in the company have created. A, a great example is, um, anytime it's somebody's birthday, and as simple as that might sound, um, there's a, a birthday kit that goes out to every office for whoever that person is in whatever office. And right. we have a few admins or people that, you know, the day you walk into your office, uh, it's decorated and it's festive and it's promo shop. And uh, I happened to be in our Encino office yesterday, and one of the offices was just amazingly creative. Wow, that's um, so fun. And so, and so, yeah, I mean, continuity is important, trying to make people feel like they're here without them having to be here. Um, and then we do a, a lot of events, and we do a lot of uh, cohesive uh, type of exercises. Um, part of the thing that I think might be of, of interest is uh, that we don't make anything mandatory, yet we think that if you provide enough value, people will keep coming back. Mm. Uh, we have uh, every Tuesday we have a, a call that I uh, that I actually put together with all of our salespeople and sometimes uh, everyone in the company and it's a time that we share success stories we share not so successful stories uh, and again a big believer that if we learn from each other's mistakes and successes we'll always be better and we won't have to reinvent the wheel so if you can try to create that environment practice it preach it and then act on it and succeed with it I think it innately permeates a teaming environment that uh, that we've been so far successful in uh, in creating. 
Well, and, uh, and, and Danny, uh, I know that you and, and your business partner, Robert, uh, who is, uh, uh, just as much a troublemaker as you are, uh, have done, you know, a very similar job to, to, to Memo in terms of really having built this interesting culture between your two offices and having a team that really, uh, works well. So it's, uh, I mean, I say this as someone that has, really been uh, focused just on the one location and having and having all of our staff in one spot so i always always admire people that are able to pull it off in multiple locations yeah appreciate that i you know um i want to make one point and then i want to talk about that for a second some more uh memo whether you realize it or not it seems like that the shadowing of that person that came on board to to watch you and see how you worked and to become um you know, someone who would be a, a loyalist in your company was essentially it seems like it was succession planning, you know, at an early stage, which is really interesting. I know it's, it can't be sustainable now with just you managing all those salespeople coming in, and you must have some other different sort of model. And I'm, so I'm curious about what are you doing now that's similar to that um, because from the succession planning standpoint, I, I, it made me think that some of our very best and most loyal people came in as sort of, um, support admin staff, and now they're some of our very best salespeople because they've done all of the jobs and they know what it's like and they've and they've interacted. So, you know, now that you're a bigger organization, what are the things that you're doing um, in terms of that that uh, grooming of the new person and, and bringing them in? And I know you know you noted that you don't bring in people that are necessarily from the industry, you like starting out fresh. Yeah. Uh, I think now it's sort of a combination of all, and I really wish we had the time to, to go back to, to those days because it was seriously one of the, the funnest and most rewarding things. So now we have a plan, and the plan is not based on what we need. It's the plan on what the people that are interested in need. In the, uh, you know, so it makes it a little more dangerous. And so you have the people you know that have sales experience that uh, – they know what they're doing, but they're not sure about the industry, uh, and they need to make money quicker, and they don't have a year to spend, and they have families to support. Uh, those uh, we sort of put on the fast track, and the fast track is uh, come and spend as much time in any office, come and listen, come and learn. Um, I have a lot of paperwork and a lot of uh, sort of things that I've kept throughout the years that I share with them that I think will make them a little bit better, but I, um, I think it's those types of... Uh, um, opportunities uh, probably are not going to be as successful as others. Um, we still have a program, which I'm still extremely proud of, where we get younger individuals that can take the time to be a support or can be the time take the time to do other things, uh, and those continue to move up the ranks. Um, I think some of the things that we have learned, uh, especially from this very um, horrible economy and the people that we always said, you know, they're overqualified to, to come work in this organization, yet they need a job, is you got to give them a vision that there's an opportunity beyond what you're going to uh, employ them from for day one. And, um, and we do that a lot. It could be in accounting, not necessarily in sales. It could be in the warehouse and, and things like that where they, once they get in, they get to realize if they wanted to move on into the sales world for whatever world they want to. We have upward mobilities where I'm getting to mm. uh, opportunities. Uh, and yeah, it takes size to have that, but also I think it takes a little bit planning and in, in being able to explain how over the years you can become something more than what you think. Uh, and then the other, uh, unfortunately, is what uh, some of the things that I think are not so wonderful about our industry, which is 
we're not always creating new jobs and creating new opportunities. We are stealing, borrowing, sharing from others without creating a new marketplace. We are just, you know, hiring others that have worked somewhere else. Uh, and those are successful, yet they're not as rewarding, and they might not be as lasting as a lot of the other relationships that we have. I think that uh, that explains sort of the, the three or four different visions or versions of how you can uh, continue to create that atmosphere of, of caring and wanting. Um, does, does, Danny, do you agree with that? I mean, is that something that, uh, that you guys try? Yeah, we do. And I mean, I think what you said was fairly eloquent. I mean, I, you, you're talking about something that is coming up in, in a lot of the, um, the higher level sessions like in Power Summit and NALC, for example. I think the whole industry is, is talking about, you know, first it's this big number, 432,000 jobs in the U.S. alone are connected to, um, to this industry. And that's from factory workers all the way on up um, to owners and, and distributorships and supplierships. And, and that number is very large, so that allows us to, um, to go into battle when we're talking about legislation in D.C. And that's a good thing, but you're right, opening up uh, new opportunities is um, it's harder. Uh, and I know we've created all these experiences in our company and services that we feel like nobody else is offering in the industry using promotional products. And it's tough. It takes a very long time not only to train our sales team to create the right you know, pay model, to educate our clients and then of course to, to execute those programs and make sure that they're they're providing the return that we anticipated. Um, supremely difficult stuff to do, uh, but gosh I love it. It's the thing that Robert and I, I mean I think that's why we're in this business is that we want to make a difference. Um, and So it's, it's great to hear you say it in that way. I, I wanted to ask one question because you're talking about um, about transparency and trust and openness and family and it sounds like there's an extended family there that that goes beyond your employees to their families and and all the fun things that you do and the opt-in and if it's good you know then they stick stick around if it's not then you know you guys are failed and you've got to try something new and I think that's a great methodology um, one question we don't do this at Brandfield outside of on the sales team but I'm curious if you offer this because you talked about what I consider the open door policy less, you know, accounting where the, the keys are, the door's locked on that door. And, and I was wondering if that's a euphemism for um, transparency and what people get paid. Does everybody know and do people talk about it and are they, they celebrate bonuses? Is that fairly transparent within your organization and how does that work if it is? Um, I, um, I was a big believer that no one should know or no one should care how much your neighbor was making, that that was yep. my... That, that was my thing. And uh, what, 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 why that conversation came up a bunch of years ago is the question came up, should we publish people's sales numbers? Should we tell the industry how much we sell? Uh, is it anyone else's business but our business? And I was completely against it. And yet when you're against something, I think you also got to realize that if somebody has a different point of view, you're supposed to listen. And you're not always right. And this was another one where I was completely wrong. And I was, being, I was told that we should publish numbers. And I was told that it's healthy. It's healthy for competition. It's healthy for the environment. We're a sales company. And I still got stuck saying, you know, I don't want anyone to know how much everyone's making because, you know, you take a look at the commission structure, you take a look at their sales, and you see their gross profit, you can make up how much people are making. And I said, but you know what? If you guys uh, think it's important, let's try it. And uh, so we tried it, and 
I was wrong. It uh, it works. Uh, us back to us type A salespeople, uh, we compete against ourselves every day, but we also compete against our environment and we compete against our neighbors. Healthy competition, but it's just to be to become better. And what came out of that was we started creating uh, different clubs within the organization, uh, and it was. Uh, very important for people. We have a, two different clubs. One's called, called our surf club, and the other one's called our longboard. Uh, all of our clubs and all of our cultural uh, attachments happen to go with surfing terms and surfing environments. And uh, we've taken the beach uh, scenario as a, sort of our, our home. And uh, that happened because back to the Chris Robinson, he thought we're a mile from the beach. We should be a surf company, although we don't really surf. But um, but we, so we created these stratas per se, and as we started publishing numbers, we started putting stratas saying, "Hey, if you reach this sales volume, you can become a surf club member." And so it became really important for people to become mm -hmm. surf clubbers. And then we created, you know, at the same time, we created a long board, meaning uh, you're not only really good, you're really, really good, and you become part of the whatever percentage on the top. And so we created this by publishing numbers by creating healthy competition without the within the organization. And yet, there's no limits to how many longboarders we can have. So it's not where you sit against others. It's as long as you reach a certain level, you qualify. And so that innately had sort of created that uh, lack, of anim lack of animosity. In a previous uh, world, uh, it was uh, the top 10 got this, the second 10 got that, the third 10 got this. and and that, that didn't work very well because, again, you created animosity. Uh, we said, as long as you reach this, if everyone reaches it, we're all going to be longboarders. Uh, and we recognize them, and we take them on nice trips, uh, and we do things that we wouldn't do for others. And uh, it starts with support levels, which, uh, you know, we, we're very strong believers here that uh, salespeople, uh, they're very uh, focused on two things, commission structures and service levels. And so those are the two things that we keep upping as sales and as these uh, groups are achieved uh, without any limits. Wow. So what about on the supplier side? Talk a little bit about that because Mark and I had the pleasure of going up to see Jonathan Isaacson's gem line, and uh, I don't know when that was, Mark, a few, four months ago or so. And, um, and we did a factory tour, and, and they were very generous, and he wanted to show us their processes more than anything. We had seen enough bags. They were talking about process, right? They wanted to show us how they were making their their suppliership really awesome, and and why that was important to distributors and ultimately the end users. Um, and and we walked into this uh, nice foyer. Remember this, Mark? And there was this. Uh, it was like a, an awards section they had there. Yep, yep, uh, I remember it. And, and the one award, and they had <laughs> they had hundreds of these things. The one award, or there were multiple awards from you guys that you had given them, a distributor. It wasn't from PPAI or ASI or some other organization. It was from you all. This really cool, looked like this cast uh, surfboard scene that said best supplier of the year gemline. It looked fun. It had energy. I mean, I looked at all these glass awards, and I know those things are important, but I just thought about what company would invest that kind of thought into giving to the supplier, recognizing the power of that relationship. And I'd love for you to talk about your, um, the methodology there and why that's important and maybe you know, send a cue to some of these other distributors that 
I think, frankly, and, and I know we've had some salespeople who have done it in the past, and I hate when it happens, but they beat up a supplier. Some of it's deserved, maybe, but usually it's just not fair. We're not thinking in terms of partnership. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it goes back to the concept of, of what we were talking about, you know, uh, creating a community. And, you know, we're big believers that the community doesn't stop and start when you walk into one of our buildings. You know, our community is, you know, the most important guy is the shipping guy at the CERN factory which we don't recognize enough. And so we uh, not only are we part of a, a buying group, uh, that, uh, it's called the Legacy Buying Group, where we have a sort of defined or shortened our list of preferred vendors, but we've also created a, a vendor program where we allow them to succeed with us. Uh, and we don't ask, I don't think, the world of them. I think that uh, we, we truly call them partners because we like to share and invest in them as much as they like to share and invest in us. Um, and so what, how that came about is, you know, back to recognition. The industry started from recognition. And uh, we all like to be recognized in different ways. And so we decided, why not recognize the people that make our lives better or we can't live without? I mean, that might be the only people you might want to think of recognizing, actually. And so what we do is uh, we ask all of our admin that have any touch points with suppliers. And we ask all of our salespeople that have touch points with suppliers. And we send a survey out. And uh, we recognize, I believe, three suppliers a year for different levels, uh, including sales reps in different territories. And uh, I think that's a great process. And I think that's a really good way of, of uniting and creating a synergy within two organizations that are actually working towards the same end. And then the awards came out, which, again, I give all the kudos to uh, Chris Robinson that's most passionate about this. Um, one day he was walking at one of these beach stores and he saw these die-cast uh, old cars. And since we are sort of beachy and sort of, you know, outdoorsy, he thought, you know, I have these cars, now I've got to find some bases and create these awards. And if you go to other suppliers, uh, I had the privilege of walking, uh, of going to Sanmar not too long ago, and not only was there only one award out, it was our award. And I asked, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm honored. And, did you just put this out because I'm coming in today? They're like, no, we just love that award. <laughs> and so you're hitting on a couple points. You're recognizing, you're giving them something of value, and you're something, giving them something that you created. You cannot find these awards off the shelf. These awards are things that we have sought out, and uh, it's been now five or six years where uh, we've created a different award for every year and they just continue to get to get better. And now the awards are the ones that get sought out, not necessarily the honor of getting the award. Impressive. Yeah, memo. And I I remember I was on that trip with uh, with Danny, and and I I uh, never forgot I uh, never forgot that award. I almost felt like I wanted to go into the cabinet and grab it and put it in my bag <laughs> because I thought it was so cool. If anyone uh, wants to buy awards, we sell awards. You do fantastic cool awards for you. And and your website is uh, promoshop.com. Is that right? <laughs> Promoshopping.com. Okay. Um, I, I'm I'm. I'm really interested in this idea of creativity as being core to a business model. And we have had the privilege to interview and speak with about 50 people over the course of the last uh, one to two years on this podcast. And we've got, we've heard from so many different people. Um, but one area that, that doesn't, uh, 
that doesn't uh, come up a lot is this idea of a true creative agency, a true creative distributorship. And I'm, I'm interested in what that means for you and, and maybe more specifically for those people that are listening on the call that, 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 are, that are intrigued by this idea of selling on creativity as opposed to just selling product and selling on transactions. Um, how does one grow and build a creative-oriented distributorship? And what does that mean to you? Uh, the, I, think, and I'm, I think I'm going to answer this a little bit backwards. Um, I, I think it builds itself with a thought process because I don't think you can just buy creative people and say, here, apply it to our industry or to our products. Um, when uh, the Internet came to be uh, 10 years ago or so, uh, or actually work in our industry, in every industry. You know, I think we were all scared of whether or not we would, or this model would still be in business. Right. Uh, or was it all going to happen online? And that's where we started trying to figure out what can we do to differentiate because as the world becomes more commoditized, as the bigger players get bigger, the smaller gets smaller, and so the same is happening with our client base, right? They want everything for nothing or or they want to work with the biggest ones because they think they're the biggest ones. We were trying to figure out if there was such a thing as a sweet spot. And it had to be not just a sweet spot, it had to be a sustainable business model with a sweet spot. And so I think it started with the people that we started hiring or that started coming over here because I would never consider myself extremely creative. Some people might think I am, but it's not what gets me up at night. Uh, I'm more process-oriented, more sales-oriented. But I started surrounding myself with people that would bring ideas to me that I'd be like, you're crazy, and I love it. Mm. And so a little bit of trial and error, you start becoming a little bit of, and it's not about the product, I think. I think it's about the approach and the communication. And it was all about we asking the question, how can we differentiate our big pen from your big pen? You know, it's, it's almost impossible. And so I think the way you present it and you present the full package, and so I think what we've become is we, we're not selling products, uh, and we're not selling ideas either. I think that sounds a little hokey. But I think we're selling a combination of products, ideas, services, relationship, and a cohesive unit that in any or other organization or client base, uh, we can understand each other. And so if I was speaking to a client today, that's sort of where I start. I start talking about we wanting to immerse ourselves into their culture, their environment, and get to know what, because creative to me doesn't mean it's creative to somebody else. And so you've got to figure out within each environment what they believe is creative. Mm. You know, some people believe a mug with a straw is really creative, uh, but they haven't, you know, they haven't been around our product line for too long. So it's really recognizing each opportunity and figuring out what can we elevate within their uh, surroundings and within their culture and their buildings that will make it seem as though we are more creative than somebody trying to sell them a cup with a straw. Right. Uh, I don't know if that, if that makes sense. No, I, th- I, th- I think it makes perfect sense. And like we were talking about with your approach to training and recruiting people in terms of it uh, uh, translating into long-standing employee relationships, uh, I also think, and this is based on some of our experience as well in the distributor business, that a creative approach uh, leads to some really good business results in terms of good margins, long-standing and loyal client relationships, uh, price becoming something that becomes 
you know, number four, five, six, or seven on the list of priorities when you're when you're working with the customer. And so, I, I, I would I would imagine that this is um, how do I say this? You you mentioned that you were more of a process and sales guy and less of a creative guy, but I suspect the business person in you has seen that by being creative, it's 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 shown amazing business results. So, of course, why wouldn't you continue doing that? Oh, I but, but I think creative also, the definition of creative in, in most people's minds are that you can create products that are better than others. Right. For me, creative is creative approaches to getting your idea or your product into somebody's hands that understands why it is that you're giving him that piece. Right. Right. Uh, you know, the good old days, we'd walk into opportunities with duffel bags, we'd roll them in and, and throw a product in the table and say, hey, do you want to buy something? Yep. Uh, now we walk in with a book. Yep. You know, and no product, and we become better listeners, and we become more adept at, that, at what's better for them and not for us. Right. Uh, and, and that, I think, uh, has made us seem as though we're very creative. And then again, with the stuff that we produce sometimes, I go, oh my, I can't, I didn't even know we could do things like that. Yeah. Um, a, a last asterisk on that. Uh, and so we also promote creativity. All right. And uh, one of the easiest and most basic ways of promoting is back to that competition uh, conversation. Uh, we have a creative contest every month. And what we ask our people is, if you think that you have a creative project, uh, you submit it. The whole company votes on who the most creative project was that month. Uh, and then we spiff him with some money and some recognition. And again, the, pro the, the winners are not always who creates the coolest product, but it's who had an opportunity and how they went about to navigate to getting to the end, which might be a writing instrument, not necessarily the most creative item, but the way that they created the opportunity might be the creative means to that project. Right, right. That's uh, I, what uh, what an amazing answer. Um, I'm just looking at the time here, Memo. And I think we've probably got time for uh, a, 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 another question here. Um, there's actually so many questions that we want to ask you, so we definitely have to do a part two on this. But I, I uh, maybe two questions. Um, I'm and I'll let Danny ask the last one, but I'll, I'll jump in with this. Uh, I know it's it's well documented uh, in in the industry press memo that that uh, Promo Shop has uh, has a, a working relationship with Disney, and I'm curious for the on behalf of the people that are listening to this call about how you have been able to navigate working with a company like that uh, in terms of safety regulations and dealing with procurement and I think a lot of people in this industry are very intimidated when it comes to working with larger companies in terms of navigating the RFPs and navigating these razor thin margins and this huge inventory risk that a lot of distributors are, that a lot of distributors are are expected to take um, clearly you've been able to make it successful and I think there's a lot of people that wouldn't be so uh, wouldn't be so successful with Managing a relationship with that, uh, with 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 a company of that size, um, do you have any comments as to how you've been able to make that work, and and any advice for people that are looking to go after larger companies like that? Uh, I could talk about this for ten days, but I'll try to do it in two minutes. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I like I mean, asking it, questions. 
Uh, I mean, I, I really think that it begins with making sure that there's some equilibrium in, a, in a, an opportunity or in a relationship. Uh, as we have equilibrium within our organization, our salespeople with the company and in our company with our clients, uh, we started working with Disney uh, right even before I started PromoShop. Uh, I had some contacts and we did some work with them. And the beauty of a Disney is that they're very transparent and they're transparent in a not always nice way. Uh, they're very demanding. They're very needy. They are very much in the limelight. And I think it's a matter of figuring out how you can please or how you can provide the services that they need without getting crushed and without it always being on your end. Right. So when you when you create a relationship with a big organization, uh, you know, back in the day I thought it'd be great to say that we did business with the Disney of the world. Uh, now it's not something that I you know that, that we prance around talking about. It's just something we do. Um, you, you touched upon a couple of things. So we understand Disney's business is the beginning of of a good relationship. Understanding what their vision is. Understanding what their salespeople and what their promoters are saying within themselves. It's, it's being in their buildings a lot. It's listening to their conversations about what's important to them. It's uh, knowing in the news what the next best thing is going to happen. Uh, so all those things, I think, are, are readily available to you and to anyone in the world uh, via the Internet and all these tools. And so that sort of gets you to the dance sometimes. And then the next step is really thinking about whether or not you can support some of the business requirements that they have. Uh, it starts with a humongous... Uh, insurance umbrella. Again, everyone can get it, but it's expensive. Uh, and then the, the biggest point that I thought you mentioned was uh, compliance. Um, from day one, and even though I think in our industry compliance has become a, you know, in the last two to three years we've been talking about it, we've been dealing and talking compliance for 15 years. And we've been getting better at it uh, before we said that we could and we did and we did it with outside resources and, and by really going to their seminars and going to outside resources that taught us what it was that we could get in trouble with. Uh, and now it's a little bit of a elevation of those types of services that have kept us in their supply chain for this long. Uh, compliance is an example. Um, I'm proudest to say that I think we're one of the few companies in our industry that has a chief compliance officer. Mm. And what our chief compliance officer does is not only understands the rules, the regulations about the state of California or CPSIA across the country, but about the regulations of each of our clients. And uh, this lady has become an integral part of their process, mm. where as they're setting up standards and as they're setting up uh, ways for them to continue to protect themselves, they sometimes call us to ask us if some of the things they're thinking uh, are actually possible and are applicable to what they do. So you truly become a partner in some of the areas that we all need help in. And I think that's how we have kept uh, the, the relationships going. And yes, price is important, but we've taken that as, as you mentioned, Mark, uh, that's now the second or third part of the conversation. It's not yeah. at the forefront of it. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's the truth of immersing yourselves into their world, and it's all about them. Uh, and it's a privilege and an honor to be part of their group. And that's the way that we've... Uh, that we've taken it and have uh, have been able to keep it for so long. I love it. I love it. It's uh, it, it's thinking creatively and strategically about how you can offer your services as opposed to just a guy who's got uh, 
some products that uh, you want to sell out of ca- uh, out of uh, a catalog. Um, yeah. Danny, do you want to do you want to finish her off with one more question for Memo, and then we can and let just, it go. And, and just real quick, and by the way, nothing about that. There's immediate gratification. No. <laughs> yeah, it, it right. takes a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of resources. But I think if you have a plan, you can get there, and you see the baby steps that, that get you there. Sorry. It's like anything, right? Say, yeah. Yep. Yep. Sage advice. Yeah, I was trying to think of something that would be uh, a little little lighter note, and um, I just have I have some curiosity. I think a lot of I, we we learned that. Um, and Mark, you mentioned this on other podcasts, that suppliers didn't understand, or a lot of suppliers didn't understand what dis- distributors go through who are really working from the creative vantage, like what process happens. And, and I, this occurred when I was on a, a marketing smackdown and, and talking to these folks afterwards. They were just blown away at, at how much thought has to go into coming up with that right product and, and the implementation of it. And so, I, you know, taking it to... A creative space here, but also I want to keep it kind of light and interesting for people because I think suppliers want to hear something that maybe you guys have done before uh, that was, and I like using the word fearless, um, something, but it could be interesting or really off the wall or really, it really begot some some emotion. Um, so think about a sale or something you created. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be soup to nuts, but something that maybe even offended your mom. Um, that promo shop did. It's just fun, and and tell tell us a story. Ah, yeah, yeah. Tell you a story. Uh, I can tell you a story that we were trying to hire a lady, and she walked through the hallways and saw paper proof and said, "I can't work with a company like yours. Uh, I'm offended by some of the logos that are on there." But uh, that's not that creative. Um, I think that again. I mean, we we deal with the hustlers and the playboys, and so from the risque side. Uh, we've yeah. created some really neat items uh, that sometimes you got to sort of put through the through the other fax machine or through the other computer so it's not offensive to the rest of the organization. Um, um, I think kits, uh, a lot of kits. Uh, we happen to be in Los Angeles, a lot of movie studios and a lot of things. And, um, you know, the, the not, not necessarily the, the day after kit, uh, but we've... Uh, I think the types of kits that we've done now have evolved into the, the night of kit, the how to get in trouble, not how to get out of trouble kit. Um, so uh, it's, it's sort of all over the place without defining the products themselves. Um, you know, if you see the movie, um, da, 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 what's it called, uh, Hangover, hmm. um, yeah. you, you could only imagine the types of kits that you can put for, together for a movie like that. Uh, so that, all that stuff is a, it's very cutesy, it's very cool, um, and uh, you know it's, it's some of the things that uh, if I were downstairs and walk around our showroom, um, I think it's not the items that we do. I think it's the properties that we work with that make the items really, really cool. You know, and, yeah. and that sort of it's the logos, it's the way that we decorate it, and then the way you package it and deliver it. Uh, it's the sound chips, it's the video cards, it's the it's things that you adapt to a common product to elevate it into a something that is collectible mm. uh, we we gauge our success unfortunately or fortunately even when some of our products make it to eBay how's that ah that's great uh, it, it is the weirdest funniest thing and it all started that um, a few years ago actually a long time ago a few years ago uh, we were working with a property for Shrek and we did these eight and a half foot 
inflatable Shreks that were just so cool. And suddenly, uh, I got a link uh, to a uh, to a police report that somebody ran into a uh, into a, a store, tore up the strings holding up this humongous Shrek, and they ran out and they stole Shrek. All right, and so that became, and it actually happened twice for that promotion by itself. And then you started <laughs> seeing Shrek inflatables on eBay. Wow. And so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, I think that that sort of makes me laugh and sort of makes me feel that we have contributed wrongfully or rightfully to something or somebody, or to something that somebody wants or needs. Uh, so, unfortunately, I'd say things that get on eBay that we produce are things that I would consider to be cool or that some other people might want. That's great. That's great. Hey, Mark, you want to uh, want to segue real quick to American Apparel's T-shirt stunt? <laughs> I, I, I was yeah, I was just laughing right. about that. That it it is a great transition point too. I'm sure there'll pro probably be a number of those on eBay, likely selling for over a hundred bucks each. I'm sure. Um, oh yeah. You know what's interesting about that that particular uh, controversy, which is nothing new for American Apparel, of course, in your backyard memo. Um, is is I was uh, noted that that shirt is no longer on their website, so it's either been sold out or they <laughs> they bowed to public pressure. I don't know, but ah, there you go. I it, but isn't that amazing that in our what we consider to be in our small environment and industry, the impact that we can have in society when we do things right and things wrong? Yeah, I think that's what's so powerful about what we do that sometimes we don't even appreciate. That we have the power to screw up a lot of things. Well, and you know, I, I mean, even taking that one step further, regardless of whether you think what American Apparel did was absolutely horrific or absolutely genius, I mean, you could be on either side of the fence. The bottom line is, is you think about the power of design, and you think about the power of our medium, particularly things like shirts that people walk around on. You think just how pervasive and how influential this business really is and we don't give ourselves credit for it so uh, whether you want to slap Dove Charney across the face for doing that or you want to give him a high five it's still it's still interesting <laughs> I think uh, he's brilliant I mean he he pushed the envelope in an area that no one else was willing and he stood by it and he didn't hide from it yep. and uh, he's got a pretty insane publicly traded worldly renowned company now yeah damn Canadians you know, they're always getting in trouble cool. <laughs> Some of his practices I wouldn't preach, but that's not, not for me to say. <laughs> he knows his market. Um, yeah, well, Memo, this has been, uh, been been so much fun. Thanks so much. We uh, we've really taken the full hour here with you, and uh, and and know that uh, we will follow up with you and schedule a version two because we're really just getting started. Um, so much fun. Thank you so much. And an honor. Thank published. you for inviting me to this. And uh, if I can ever help again, I'll be Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Have a great day. Bye-bye.